Hebrews chapter 4, we'll read from verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 13, though our passage today is verses 8 to 11. We'll read the context. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, which emphasizes this passage that we study today, will emphasize being diligent to enter the rest of God, or the heavenly rest that awaits us. Verse 1. Therefore, let us fear lest, while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said in a certain place concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, grant us a desire to know you through your word and to know you through the promises you have made for heavenly rest. Teach us, Lord, not to pursue the things of the world and not to be like the wilderness generation that sought for the things of the world and were not satisfied by the rich and wonderful promises of God. Grant us contentment in the things of God and in heavenly rest. And our prayer is offered in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, in... Hebrews 4, verse 8, where we pick up, the apostle has already explained that God has a certain kind of rest. And the rest that he has is not the Sabbath day itself, which was once in every seven days in the Old Testament or on the seventh day of the week, which was a physical rest. That rest he commanded them, and it was good for them, but that's not the ultimate rest that he put before them. He also gave them another promise, which we pick up on in verse 8. That is the rest that Joshua gave. Joshua, the commander and leader of the people, the successor of Moses, who led the people from the wilderness, from the area on the border of the land of Canaan, in the land of Moab, and he led them to conquer Jericho and all the rest of the cities and, and land of the land of Canaan. He led them to inherit that land of plenty, of richness, of fatness, of goodness, of, of abundance in every way. He gave them that land. He was the leader. Joshua was the leader of the people. However, our apostle, in both cases, the weekly Sabbath rest, and as well the rest that Joshua gave and granted to the people of Israel by conquering the Canaanites, those two kinds of physical and earthly rests were not to be ends in themselves. They were not the goal of each week. That is, let me work hard for six days and then get my physical rest on the seventh day, though that would have been enjoyed. And it was not merely to leave slavery from Egypt and to leave the harshness of the wilderness for 40 years to be able to inherit a land of plenty, to have land that they could possess, that they could farm, that they could have their cattle graze on, to have all kinds of vineyards and olive groves and everything like that, 
to enjoy the fruit of the land. It was not merely so that they would not have slavery anymore, not have physical hardship anymore. It was not so that they would not have any more warfare. Though things like that were granted to them when they inherited the land of Canaan. In both cases, the symbols of the weekly rest and the land rest, the Canaanite rest that they received, were reiterated again and again in the Old Testament as examples and foretastes and anticipations of heaven, of being with God forevermore in heaven. And the means of being in heaven with God forevermore was to believe in the gospel of Christ. That's why it says in verse 2, we have had good news or the gospel preached to us just as they also, they means the generation of the wilderness under Moses and Joshua. They had the gospel preached to them just as we have the gospel preached to us so that we might enter heaven, that we might be with the Lord forever and ever. And the only means of that entrance is belief or faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that he would come into the world in the Old Testament, they anticipated this, and in our case, that he has come into the world to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, and to rise from the dead on the third day, to ascend into heaven, to intercede for us now until his second coming, and when he comes in his second coming, we will be prepared, because his righteousness is ours, his perfection is ours, his sinlessness is ours, reckoned to our account so that God the Father does not look at us as we deserve, but he looks at us in Jesus Christ. And we are declared righteous because we have faith in Christ. Christ's righteousness is applied to us and covers all of our sins. That is the only means to enter heaven. Well, these truths were proclaimed by both Moses and Joshua, by Isaiah and David, by everyone in the Old Testament who knew and believed these truths, they proclaimed these truths. We said last time that it is amazing that even though these truths are set before the people, both in ancient times and even in modern times, that people, even though they have wonderful promises set before them, somehow and in some way, they despise them and walk away from them. They don't truly believe in what God says, even though they are good super abundantly good. And we might reflect on the fact that this should not surprise us. After all, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, they had the Garden of Eden and they had no sin in their life. God granted them this lush and rich Garden of Eden. They could partake of any tree. They had no warfare. They had no evil. There was no sin in the world. Nothing like that. There was no misery. Nothing was there. And God set the whole garden before them. And even though God set goodness before them in great abundance, they chose to reject it. Now, if Adam and Eve chose to reject that goodness, and they were sinless, perfect from the very beginning, then should it surprise us when people today who do have sin because we are born with a sinful nature we have all kinds of sin and evil all around us. Should it surprise us that when the gospel, the good news of forgiveness of sins, eternal life in Christ is presented to people today, that they reject it? It shouldn't surprise us. Let's see the warning here that we have. After all, again, this passage from Hebrews 3, 7 to 4, verse 13 is a long warning passage, one of the warning passages of this letter to the Hebrew Christians. This, we pick it up right here towards the end of this warning. He continues to warn us not to reject that which God has placed before us as being abundantly good and right and beneficial for us. Verse 8, the example of Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. If Joshua had given them rest, well, Joshua did give them rest in one sense. As we said before, in the sense that he gave them inheritance in the land of Canaan. In Joshua chapter 21, after Joshua and the people had conquered 
the Canaanites, it says in Joshua 21, verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. There we have a clear <coughs> statement that God did give through Joshua rest to the people. But what is this rest that he's talking about? He's talking about peace. He's talking about the, the ability to live without enemies afflicting them and invading them in their borders. This is what he's talking about. This is the rest that God promised and he gave. But this was not intended to be their only hope. It was merely to be a symbol, a type, and an illustration of God's goodness to them that could and would be fulfilled in a longer, enduring way. Just as it says in Hebrews 11, that Abraham and Sarah and all the patriarchs, they considered themselves strangers and exiles on the earth now, and they would look forward to heaven. They were looking for a city whose architect and builder is God, whose foundations are laid by God. They were looking for heaven, a heavenly city, a heavenly Jerusalem. They were looking for that even though they inherited the land of Canaan. Now, did the people know this? Did the people understand this? Well, the believers did. We notice in Leviticus chapter 25, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, God in this chapter gives the people of Israel instructions on what they should do with their land. And he says to them in Leviticus 25, 23, the land moreover shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. With me. Aliens and sojourners with me. He says the land is mine. It belongs to God. Of course, the whole earth belongs to God. A reminder that even the land of Canaan belongs to God. And then when the people inherit this land, they have not inherited it yet because this is under Moses. Leviticus 25 is Moses speaking the word of God in saying this. And he says, You, the people of Israel, are but aliens and sojourners with me in Canaan, is what he means. In the land of Canaan, you will live with me, because I will be with you. Live with me as aliens and sojourners in the land of promise. Now that's a strange thing to say, unless he meant that they would be aliens and sojourners in the land of Canaan, to the extent that the land of Canaan is a symbol of their heavenly home, of their heavenly city, of being with God forever. That's the only way Leviticus 25, 23 makes sense. And corresponding to that is the passage we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 16. There the apostle says, Abraham and the others, they knew that they were aliens and sojourners on the earth and they were looking for something greater and better because they would be with God in Canaan and look for something better and greater. And in fact, that's the argument of the apostle here. He's saying, after quoting David in Hebrews 4, verse 7, David, by the Holy Spirit of God, saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why is it that David would say, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts? David lived in the land of Canaan. He was a king. He controlled all the ten tribes. Uh, I'm mean, sorry, all the twelve tribes. He controlled them all. He controlled the whole territory. That which God had given to them, he conquered most of that territory and they possessed it. Except they had peace with a few people like the, the Tyrians and, and the Sidonians in, uh, by the Mediterranean Sea. But otherwise, David had conquered. They possessed the land. If David says, by the word of God, do not harden your hearts so that you not enter God's rest, What's the rest that David is preaching to them? Even though David lived hundreds of years, four to five hundred years after Moses and Joshua, and he's actually living there, he was born there, he's a native of the land of Canaan, 
What is the rest that David is telling them about? Preaching. He's preaching about heaven. He's telling them, don't live for this world. Don't live for the land of Canaan. Yes, you have all that you want to eat and drink here. Yes, you have peace, especially under David and Solomon. There's no warfare. There aren't enemies on the border seeking to destroy. They're not going to be able to destroy because God had empowered David and Solomon with enough military might to conquer all their enemies. They had that peace for about 40 uh, or 80 years, 40 completely in the time of Solomon, and also for much of David's reign. He had peace. He conquered. He, ha- he was a man of warfare, but then he left, when he died, a land that was at peace, and then handed it over to his son. So David is not, when he's warning the people, talking about Canaan, he's talking about heaven. He's saying heaven. That's what he means here in Hebrews 4.8. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Another day after that is David saying, there is a day of rest that you should enter. So enter that rest. Hundreds of years after Joshua, David, by the word of God, says, there's another opportunity. This is the main opportunity that, opportunity that is set before you. Enter that rest. So after arguing that, verse 9, he says, There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The people of God have something to look forward to, something that remains, not the weekly Sabbath, not the land Sabbath, not the Canaanite rest, that kind of Sabbath, but the ultimate Sabbath is what he means in verse 9. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest, the ultimate Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, he uses this word Sabbath rest, and this will remind us of the weekly Sabbath. Let's ask the question, did the people of Israel know that the weekly Sabbath was just a symbol, a sign, or a type, an illustration of something better and greater? Did they know that? Were they taught that? Were they told that? Or is that something that just is made up here in Hebrews chapter 4? Well, Exodus 31 will answer that question. Exodus 31, Exodus 31, verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Verse 17. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Twice, what does he say this Sabbath is? He calls it a sign. And if it's a sign or symbol of what is it signifying? A sign signifies something greater and better. Correct? When we see a stop sign, it signifies the fact that we should stop. And if we don't stop, we'll be in an accident. Correct? And that is worse than the actual sign itself. Or it is greater, it's greater significance than the actual sign itself. It is a useful sign and we must observe it. But the sign isn't the goal of life. The goal of life is to spare your life from an accident. Because we see a stop sign. This is what God meant here. The Sabbath rest, weekly Sabbath rest, and even Canaanite rest were signs and symbols of something in heaven, something greater that should be pursued and believed. And it is there for the people of God. It is there for the people of God. The people of God, here he means, he does not mean the nominal people of God. He does not mean those who have the label Christian. He does not mean those who have the label Israel because they could, in a nominal sense, in a superficial sense, they can have the name Israel, they can have the name Christian, they can have the name church, they can have that name. There are many, many people who have that name throughout history and even in the Bible. But the Bible, when it says the people of God, we have to ask according to the context. Does he mean 
the true people of God, or is he talking about the false or superficial people of God? Is he talking about the true people of God, or is he talking about the false people of God? And in this passage, obviously, when he's contrasting the warnings between those who are disobedient and unbelieving to those who are believing and faithful and obedient, he's talking about make sure you are the true people of God. And those who enter that rest are the true people of God. The people of God. And that is the, uh, describing those who are true in their faith. Now, examples of there being false people of God and true people of God. False sons and true sons. Uh, false believers and true believers. False Christians and true Christians. Does the Bible actually speak in this way? Yes, it does. Turn, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In this chapter, there is a man in the church at Corinth. There is a man in the church at Corinth living an immoral life, a sexually immoral life. He is having his father's wife. He has his father's wife. So he is sexually immoral. He is one of the Corinthians. And re remember that when he started his letter, he addressed these Corinthians as the church of God. 1 Corinthians 1-2. Saints by calling. 1 Corinthians 1-2. He calls them the church and saints. But then we will see that among them, if somebody does not live up to the name, if that somebody starts to expose himself for his, who he really is, if his true colors come out, then you know that he is a false brother. He is a false saint. He's not a true saint. He's not a part of the true church or true people of God, but a false one. And that's what we have here. This man is unwilling to repent of his sins. And the apostle has called on the church to remove him from the church because he refuses to repent of this blatant, unrepentant sin. So he says here, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he should be an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He says, do not associate with an unrepentant so-called brother, namesake brother, in name only brother. He has the name brother. We call everybody brother and sister, but he's not living up to that name, so he's a so-called one, and he should be removed from the church. He should not even have any associations with those who truly believe, because he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, in verse 6. So he says, clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. So, Clear out this so-called brother. It's possible in this case. Of course, in this case, this man says, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm a brother. But at the same time, his confession does not match up with his conduct. His conduct contradicts his confession. So he's not a true one. He's a so-called one. Another example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He tells them that they are saved by the gospel of Christ unless you believe in vain. That is, you had a superficial, an empty faith and profession of faith in Christ. If you don't truly believe it, then you believed in vain. You said it, but you didn't really mean it. You went along with the motions, but you really didn't mean it. Then you believed in vain, he says. And if you believed in vain, you're not saved. He says, you're not saved. Even though people might think you are, you're truly not saved. 
These examples in the New Testament should not surprise us. After all, how many apostles did Jesus have? Twelve. Were they not called apostles? Yes. Were they not also called disciples? Yes. They were called apostles and disciples. But Jesus said in John chapter 6, 66 to 72, Have I not chosen you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? One of you is a devil? Judas Iscariot is an obvious example of somebody who had the name Christian, who had the name Apostle, who had the name Disciple. In Matthew 10, verses 1 to 4, it lists the names of the 12 apostles and even says Judas who betrayed him. And there, Jesus commissioned Judas and the rest of the apostles to go out and preach the gospel, to go out and heal people of diseases and cast out demons from people. He even gave Judas the name Apostle, Disciple, and granted him power, power of the Holy Spirit to conduct all those miracles and preach the true gospel. He preached the true gospel, but he really was a fraud. And eventually, his fraudulent faith exposed himself, exposed itself. His fraudulent faith eventually was manifested. This is what happens. This, this is why when the apostle tells us that a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God, the people of God he means there are the true people of God, not the false ones. There is heavenly rest only for the true people of God. Furthermore, Hebrews 4, verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. This is a complicated sentence. It, you have to follow the pronouns to be able to understand what he's saying. For the one who has entered his rest, that is, the one who has entered God's rest, has himself also rested from his works, as God did from God's works. As God rested from his works, those who enter God's rest will rest from his works because now he has joined himself to God. That's what he, he means in this verse. Now, there are two interpretations of this verse. Who is the one who has entered God's rest? Who is this one who has entered God's rest? The more common interpretation is to say that he's talking about us, people who have heard the gospel and who have truly believed in that gospel. Those who have heard the gospel and truly believe in that gospel, we enter that rest. As he says in verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. That rest, the entrance to the rest, is now. The fulfillment of it, the full fruition of it is in the future, but we enter it now. We are saved from our sins now. We're declared righteous now. We're being sanctified. And one day we will, we will be glorified when there is no more sin, evil, and death. That will be the full fruition of it. Now we experience it in part. So we enter the rest now and then fully later. That first interpretation would also say that we rest from our works. As it says, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. His works would be us as individuals. We would rest from our works. So what is the works from which we obtain rest, that we put aside so that we have God's rest? What are the works? The works that we have, he means, are evil works, are dead works, because we have no works to offer to God. It says in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, any work that we present to God, anything that we might put on the table in the presence of God is dead, is worthless, is vain, it's useless, and in fact, it's repugnant to God. 
Anything that we might present to him is completely repugnant to him. There's a stench in his nostrils, anything that we might present. So we need to rest from that, that is, put that aside and enter into God's rest with God's works. And how did God resolve that? How did God do that? He did that in Christ, right? He accomplished whatever he needed to accomplish for redemption. When he looks at the sacrifice of Christ, he looks at a soothing aroma. When he looks at the sacrifice of Christ, he looks at pure blood that is able to wash us from all our sins. When he looks at the sacrifice of Christ, he looks at his only beloved son, his dearly beloved son, who left heaven above to come down to the earth to pay the penalty for our sins. He is the only satisfaction, the only penalty, the only substitution that is good in the sight of God the Father. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He did not send the Son in vain. If He sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, that means nothing we do, nothing we present to Him, nothing we offer to Him will save us from sin. So the works that we have rest from would be our own burdens, our own sins, our own deeds that are worthless and useless in the sight of God. This is why Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden and weary from what? From our dead works from a conscience that pricks us with the guilt of our sin. We can be freed from that guilt if we believe in Christ. This is the kind of weariness and heavy laden burden that we bear. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. This is the rest of God, the heavenly rest, which is only in Christ by coming to Christ. He says, my, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. Quoting Jeremiah 6.16, Jesus says, This rest that Moses proclaimed, this rest that Joshua proclaimed, this rest that David proclaimed, this rest that Jeremiah proclaimed, this is the rest that's only found in me, Jesus Christ. Believe that my works, my godly life, my sinless life, and my life that was put to death on the cross and then raised from the dead on the third day, that life is the only life, perfect life, that will grant you heavenly rest. Only that. Furthermore, he says, my yoke is easy and my load is light. He takes away that burden of guilt and shame and he gives us his commandments. And it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, for his commandments are not burdensome. When we are with a new heart, when we are living for Christ, living in Him, whatever He tells us will not be a burden to us. Whatever He tells us to do, He will, by the Spirit of grace, grant us the grace to do it. And we will have joy and peace and assurance that we are doing His will, without any burden and without any guilt. That's the kind of promise He lays before us. The second way to interpret this passage would be to say that it is Christ. Verse 10 is describing, because it's using the singular pronoun, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. That interpretation would also be true biblically. Both are biblical, uh, biblical thoughts, interpretations that are found in other places. So it is true, just as we saw in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Jesus says, come and take my yoke upon you. That is, I will give you rest. So Jesus has entered the rest of God. He has gone through this life, having experienced temptation in all points, just as we are, yet without sin. He has paid the penalty on the cross. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. And he has entered the holy place, the heavenly holy place, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, as it says in Hebrews 9. He entered that holy place, ultimate holy of holies, in heaven itself with his own 
in order to obtain salvation, to secure salvation for us. Jesus has entered that rest, the rest of God, and he's calling on us to do the same. However we take it, both would be biblical and true interpretations. Further, let's see verse 11. Verse 11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Therefore, because of what he has already said, these truths he has already indicated, he's already explained all of this. If all of this is true, now he says, with an exhortation, let us. Exhortation is an, uh, or let us is a verbal expression that is an exhortation. Come on, let's do this together. Come on, let's do it. Let us. Let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. The term diligent, what does that mean? It means to be careful, to be persistent, to work hard, to tighten your belt, to be aware and ready to do what is right and good in the sight of God. That's what diligence is. He's calling on all of us to be diligent to enter that rest. If you think about it, to be diligent to enter that rest it all actually does conform with what Jesus said about his own self in his ministry. He says, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If any man wants to come after me, let him take up, deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He didn't say that it would be a cakewalk. He didn't say it would be a bed of roses if we followed him. He said, it takes effort. It's hard work. This is the way of eternal life. Did he also not say uh, in Matthew chapter 7 that the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life? And in Luke's parallel, he said, strive to enter by the narrow gate. He said, strive. He didn't say twiddle your thumbs. He didn't say take it easy. He said, strive to enter by the narrow gate gate. Furthermore, when there were three disciples, followers who were approaching him, and they made statements about their faithfulness or their pretended faithfulness, Jesus answered in the following way. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The apostle, when he speaks of us being diligent to enter that rest, he also couples that with hard work. He couples it with an arduous desire to defeat sin in our life, to defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil in our life. It's a struggle. It's a fight. Day by day, we must fight against sin. Don't let any sin overtake us. Whenever we are aware of it, we need to contemplate it. We need to see what the Bible says about it. We need to have assurance that this or that behavior, this or that thought, this or that word, is whether it's in this category of righteous or wicked. Is it sinful or is it good? We need to contemplate that. Muse on the Bible. See what the Bible says about those things. Because if we're not diligent like that, who knows? What sin was it? There was one sin that was mentioned about Judas Iscariot. What is the one sin that he practiced that sent him to hell? That he could not and would not overcome? He loved money. Because it says in John 12, verse 6, 
that Judas Iscariot, and when he said, we could have used this money for the ointment, we could have used it for the poor, we could have helped the poor with that money. No, he clung on to it and actually he stole it because he was the treasurer of the disciples. He had the money box, he was a treasurer, and it says in John 12, 6, he used to pilfer what was put in there. He used to steal what was put in there because he was a lover of money. One sin. See, he who keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. James 2.10. It was one sin in the case of Adam and Eve that plunged all of us, them and all of us, into ruin and destruction and misery and death and with the sentence of hell hanging over our head. It was one sin in the Garden of Eden, right? Only one sin that caused God to expel them from the Garden. That was it. So what makes us think that we can live a carefree life, thinking everything is taken care of, now I can mosey on down the road, I can live my own life, live a secluded life, I don't need to know what the Bible says. I don't need to read it. I don't need to study it. I don't need to ask about it. I can just carry on. After all, I'm I'm not such a bad person. So why be so serious about it? After all, I'm not like Hitler and Stalin. I'm not like those kinds of people. I'm not kind of sexually immoral like the people who fill Hollywood. I'm not like that. Of course I'm not like that. I'm not a liar like we have in Washington, D.C. I'm not like that. No, no, no. So I should get to heaven. And just as long as I live a moderate life, moderate Christian life, then I'll be just fine. No. He's saying here that the moment you have that attitude, the moment you have an undiligent attitude, a lazy, carefree attitude, that's where the danger is. That's when the danger is. That's when the devil will creep up. Sin is crouching at the door, as God told Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. It's sneaking up. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Whatever sin it is, whether it's one, three, ten, twenty, whatever number of sins we have that we're dealing with, be diligent to overcome them. Not because, not because, If we do good works, we get to heaven. That should have been made clear earlier. But to make sure, we're not talking about good works to get to heaven. We're talking about evidence of true faith. Faith is that which is unseen by its very nature. It's unseen unless it's manifested in words and deeds. Faith is unseen. So if it's unseen, it has to manifest itself, show evidence of itself, demonstrate itself in words and deeds. That's the nature of the gospel. That's the nature of faith. So what we're talking about, what the Bible is talking about, is that if we have true faith, it will show in fruit. It will show in our life. It will show in our values, what we desire, what we pursue, what consumes us, what consumes our time and our energies. What are the goals in, in life that we have? Are, we, are all of the goals that we have of this life um, underneath the greatest goal of glorifying God and loving Him? If they're not that way, then we have put something above God and made it an idol. And we're not being diligent in the right way. Faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And then verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith, according to that passage, is by the grace of God granted to us. It's not granted to everyone, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, for not all have faith. It's not granted to everyone. It is a gift of God that he gives to some, gives to his people, gives to his chosen ones. And the same with repentance. Repentance is a gift of God. Repentance does not come automatically. Just because you hear that you should repent doesn't mean you will repent. Why is it that 
when 10 people hear the gospel or 100 people hear the gospel, they all hear the gospel, but only some of them repent and the rest don't because God granted repentance to the sum, as it says in Acts 11.18. So then, God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Or as it says in 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. If God grants it as a gift of grace, then it will happen in a certain individual, mysteriously, your neighbor. You don't know who it will happen to, but we are faithful and we do what's right. This is the way of the Bible. But the fruit of faith and the fruit of repentance, the fruit of true faith and the fruit of true repentance is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life. It will show itself. This is what the apostle is talking about when he says, be diligent. Be diligent to produce good fruit because when you have that set before you, you will do that in faith. You will do that by the power of the Spirit of grace who will grant grace to you, empower you, illumine you, enlighten you to do the right thing according to the will of God. That's what he's speaking of here. And finally, he says, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. What is the example of disobedience he has outlined here? In chapters 3 and 4, it is the generation that Moses took out of Egypt and through the wilderness for 40 years. That is an example of disobedience. That is a corporate example of disobedience. There were also individuals among them who were disobedient, like Achan, right? And there were the 10 spies that were disobedient but also corporately, the whole group of them, the whole mass of them, generally speaking, they were unbelieving and disobedient. So he says, don't be like them. Which naturally raises the question, why is it that the Bible has so much negative examples in the Bible? So many negative examples. Why? We hear about Cain right off the bat, right? Genesis chapter 4 even with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and then Cain in chapter 4, and then the days of Noah, there's so much evil in the world. In the time of Abraham, in Abraham's case, he was the father of Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was a believer and Ishmael an unbeliever in the same family, the same father. And then we have, in the case of Isaac, Isaac married to Rebekah, they have twins. Rebekah has twins, Jacob and Esau. Why the evil example of Esau, an unbeliever? Right there, right in the same family, same mother, same father. We go on and on. We go on and on throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are examples of evil people, often contrasted with examples of good people. The righteous are contrasted with the wicked. The Bible, even in Psalm 92, which we read earlier, contrasts the righteous and the wicked. Contrast always between the righteous and the wicked throughout the Bible. Why is that set before us? Well, as it says in our passage, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. You, say, you might say, why are they there? They're there so that we might know what God thinks is evil and what God thinks is good, so that we pursue the good and reject the evil. We want to have assurance that we have eternal life, do we match up with some of these people in the Bible described as being good or righteous, redeemed, saved? Are we matching up that, that way? Or do we have a life that matches the wicked of the Bible? The Bible gives us these contrasts chapter after chapter after chapter. Ephesians 5 gives us a contrast of this. Galatians 5 gives us a contrast of this. The deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. There's contrast after contrast after contrast all throughout the Bible so that we might enter that rest. 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
Look at all those blessings, spiritual blessings even. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happen as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord or test the Lord, tempt the Lord, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. The Apostle Paul says the same as it says in Hebrews 4. These examples are there so that we not crave the things that they crave. They're written for our instructions. God actually did those things to them that they might be lessons for us, it says in 1 Corinthians 10 11. Also, in order to make us humble. Because we might think, no, we're not like those people of the past. Those people were primitive. They were backward. They had no clue. But we're sophisticated. We're educated. We're, we have all kinds of uh, experiences here that they did not have and were more brilliant because of evolution, right? They were backwards back then, but now we're sophisticated. We're smart now because we have evolved. So we're not like them. But Paul said in verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we shouldn't be proud like that. And then we should not be despondent either. We should not be discouraged and despondent by thinking, well, I'm never going to be able to overcome. Because verse 13 says, God is faithful and who will not allow you to be tempted, uh, tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God is there ready to help us, ready to help us to overcome. So let's plead with God, seek the face of God, pray to God, pray for His grace to empower us for the Holy Spirit to fill us and to guide us into the paths of righteousness, on the highway of holiness, on the way, the only way, the true way, the way of Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Father in heaven, we ask indeed that you give us this power that we need and help us to live according to your will, according to your word, and the way of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.